and welcome to the Alternative Book Club podcast, the online spin-off from the Literary Comedy Night. I am your host, Shelley Hulse, and today we are joined by two very special guests. They are award-winning comedians, Nick Page and Laura Lex. Hi, Yay. Nick and Laura. How are Hello. you both? Hi, I'm very well. Hello. Yes, I'm, I'm muddling through in lockdown nine or whatever we are at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how are your lockdowns going? Um... Well, I've just made a cheesecake that is 930 calories a slice. So I think that sums it up, to be honest. That's a step up from banana bread. I got bored bored when I was waiting for my computer to do an update and used a craft knife that was on the desk to shave my knuckles. And now they're (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's the opposite of my shaving story, which is not doing it as as often. In a scale of how bored are you? Um, yes, that's, mm. that's what I've just done. Well, I look forward to seeing when we can your beautifully bare knuckles. It'll have grown back by tomorrow. I'm officially 103% Neanderthal. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> obviously not 103%. I can do some maths. But, you know, you can do those tests, can't you? And yes. Mm-hmm. Nick's test is very simple, though. You just have to look at him. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever Googled Nick Page comedian, but um, it's hard to track down photos. There's a few blurry ones from the woods, but we're not sure we trust the sources. Also, because I'm very old, there are cave paintings of my first gigs. <laughs> wow. Brilliant. So I think we're going to start off with Nick. Nick, what are you here to talk to us about today? I am here to talk about uh, Becky Chambers' Wayfarer series, which is currently a trilogy until two weeks time when the fourth in the series gets released. And I, I, I'm just hoping that she hears this and sends me a free one, but as she won't, I'll have to order it. <laughs> um, yes, it's a trilogy of science fiction novels that I love and I find to be not like other science fiction novels in that there are no big laser fights and explosions and, and lots of pow and bang and whoosh. There, there's there's less of that. The first one, uh, A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, starts with the delightfully science fiction named Rosemary Harper joining the crew of the Wayfarer as a clerk. So it, it all seems very, very small. It's largely about the relationships between the different members of the crew who are a multi-species crew. And weirdly, because of the relationships between the various members of the crew, I thought more and learnt more about gender identity and sexuality than I previously had, which I think is a very, very clever thing for, for a book to achieve. One of the, the criticisms of the book, it was described as science fiction for the Tumblr generation. And some people were critical because they said not very much happened, although it has won and been nominated for loads and loads of awards. So for those of us who are aspiring writers, the initial publication was done through a uh, Kickstarter crowdfunding. Uh, She raised two and a half thousand pounds so she could work part time to finish the book and was initially going to self-publish. Then because of that, got an agent, got published by Hodder and Stoughton and made it onto various bestseller lists and, and award things. So... The first book is, as we said, The the Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. It follows the ship, the Wayfarer, as it's trying to tunnel through space-time. So the tunneling ships go over the sort of science fiction conundrum of how to physically do the distances by folding layers of space and time and and tunneling through those gaps. The multi-species crew includes a pair of navigators who, although they are two beings, exist as one consciousness, 
and because it's two beings with one consciousness, that's how they understand the multi-layers of space and time in order to navigate through it. And then you've got various relationships between the different people on there, and there are lots of small scenes within it that establish the characters, establish their relationships, go some way to presenting backstory, and very much setting the scene for future novels. Then we have the, the second book is A Closed and Common Orbit, which follows two of the, the characters from the first in two parallel timelines. So the artificial intelligence from the ship, when the ship is damaged, is transferred into a fake human body and is trying to learn to be a person. That's one of the timelines. And then a character that the crew meet on another planet turns out to have been raised as a, a sort of clone slave and escaped from that. And it follows her childhood uh, and her relationship with an AI on a ship, which is why she is so disposed to help this artificial intelligence to uh, amalgamate as a human. And so the two threads that are being woven from sort of different ends of the universe come together near the end. And then the third... Nick, can I pause you just for a second? Because yes. this is where I'm up to in this trilogy, <laughs> reading uh, it on your um, on your recommendation. I've not read the third one yet. Are you going to spoil anything for no, me? No, I'm not. I'm not. Good. All right. Then I can, I don't have to take my headphones out. <laughs> At various points during both of the first two books, you'll be aware, Laura, they refer to the fleet and the exodus from Earth as the Earth was yeah. becoming uninhabitable. And that, so the fleet then they form the exodus and then they, they find a place where they can exist in the universe and they become involved with the Galactic Commons, which is the sort of this universe's equivalent of the Federation from Star Trek. And so humanity gets involved with other species and other races. The, the other species decide that humans are you know, okay to join them. But the original humans are still living on these ships that are now sort of forming their own planet system because they're so big. And the third one, Record of a Spaceborne Few, just looks at aliens visiting the fleet and reporting on on how humanity has adapted to that situation. So you've got a, basically the alien equivalent of David Attenborough reporting on humanity as as an alien species, and then there are you know, plot lines following different things within there. You become aware of how humanity is living and surviving. And again, they've got some very interesting political things within it. So obviously, in that kind of colony, there are terrible jobs. So working on you know the sewage system and things like that. And they have a system where everybody has to do it for a while, regardless of you know, how they're born and what their other job is and, and what their qualifications are. Everybody has to spend a month of the year working on sewage. Everybody has to spend a month of the year working on waste disposal. And then they can go back to, you know, flying spacecraft or being soldiers or, or being accountants or whatever. I think Becky, in all of the three books so far, has got some very interesting ideas about people, how people should interact with each other and you know what it needs to create a, a harmonious working and living environment in these close quarters. And again, there are some really interesting things within it. So body modification has become very much a thing. One of the characters in the first book, he's quite short, and it's commented on that he stayed short, whereas most people, if they realised they were going to be short, would have procedures to make them taller. And the fact that he hasn't done that means, means that he sort of stands out. Also, the fact that he falls in love with an artificial intelligence and has a sort of weird sexual relationship with the, with the ship is kind of freaky as well, but less important. The captain of the ship doesn't carry any weapons. So you know, when they get into situations, they've got to think their way out of it rather than shoot their way out of it, which, again, is interesting, mm. particularly as he is involved in a relationship with a sort of member of a, a warrior species 
that are sexy as hell. So those are the three. And I said the, the fourth comes out soon, and it's one of those series that I hope continues and, and runs for a long, long time because I found it entertaining and it's made me think a lot. Uh, questions? Brilliant. Wow. There's so much in there um, and so many different facets that sound really interesting. I was just going to ask, first of all, where you found it? Um, I was trying to find some interesting science fiction on Audible, mm. and it was a recommendation on Audible. In the normal times when I'm gigging and I'm doing like 800 to 1,000 <laughs> miles a week, I go through a lot of audiobooks. And one of the great things about Audible is when you buy an audiobook, if you don't like it, you can send it back and get a refund. So I, I, you know, I've got refunds from them before when I'm halfway through a, a book and then decided that it's twaddle and it's not going anywhere. Some other science fiction, I got them to refund because it was barely disguised right-wing propaganda. Yeah, it was very recommended. I tried it, loved it, and then discovered it was being you know, recommended by Oprah and recommended by Richard and Judy and people like that, which had I found that out before I'd started it, I probably wouldn't have... <laughs> wouldn't have, have gone mm. for it yeah i find it hard to trust those amazon recommends yes but yeah I, I, so i i just yeah i, I like the first one um and it worked really well as an audiobook as well and the characters mm, are, it definitely did the characters are quite identifiable you you find yourself sympathizing with them and kind of you know almost wishing you knew them as well which is is great i think it's a great book for like it's funny you mentioned the criticism of not a lot happened, but I think sometimes I like a book that's mainly about world building. Like you yes. wouldn't want every book you read to have that, but the fact that it wasn't like you've got three chapters to meet them and then everything's going wrong. It was like small things are going wrong and here's how they cope with them. Yeah. Actually, that was really nice. I wouldn't have called that a criticism at all. And it's one of the things that makes me, like I've quite paced myself in listening to them because I'm a bit like, when I want something that's going to be interesting enough that I do follow it and I do keep up with it, but not so like, oh Lord, this is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> They're really great for that. Yeah, I was thinking about the other science fiction. I've not read a lot of science fiction, but I have read one Asimov and one Philip K. Dick. And the first part of both of those are all about kind of building the worlds. But in those ones, the worlds are like kind of the same as our world, but with whatever the author's political slant is. And this, it sounds like really refreshing and kind of very different from those kind of things where like there's one male character who is extremely well developed and <laughs> any other characters, including aliens, uh, even sexy aliens, uh, rather two-dimensional. So one of the most interesting art installations I've seen, I was at a, at a gallery somewhere in Europe and I can't remember exactly where, but they had, it was a video installation where they'd found in the 1960s, Playboy magazine had interviewed the foremost science fiction writers of the time, including Asimov and Philip K. Dick. And they'd, so they'd, they'd, there was sort of a forum where they'd sat them around a table and asked them to talk about what the world would be like in 2010. And then the, the, the gallery had got uh, actors to reenact it and you know, basically read out their interviews uh, as though it were the roundtable discussion. And there were a lot of things where you go, okay, well, that's recognisable. But from the 1960s, from 50 years in the past, as it was, their perception of how the world would work was still a very, very 1960s view of things. So although you know, Future Man mm. had a portable computer and a jet car, he was still the main breadwinner 
Um, and although most of his office functions were carried out by machines now, he still had a secretary whose job was to be decorative and fetch him you know, cup tea and coffee and things. Very, very interesting that they were seen as so progressive at the time, and yet their, their key ideas couldn't grasp one major change. Yeah, I guess they're scientifically progressive, but like politically or socially, extremely similar (laughs) to the status quo. Yeah, to me, reading those, the two books that I have read, it felt like there were a couple of like very lonely scientists having a bit of a wank about what the future might be like. Like they might have sex in the future with an alien (laughs) who might be similar to a woman. Years and years ago, when um, Mel Smith and Griff Rhys-Jones used to have a sketch show called Alas, Smith and Jones, and they would do these talking head things. And one of them would say, uh, I think Griff Rhys-Jones is, is quizzing Mel Smith and saying, so if if a spaceship landed in your garden and an alien said, you have to come away with us, and for the future of mankind, you have to mate with one of us, would you do it? Would you have sex with an alien? And Mel Smith just pauses for a it seems like forever it's probably 15 seconds and then just said is she a redhead hopefully becky chambers is a bit more reflective of what the future will actually be like yes i I feel that she is um and also weirdly i messaged her uh to thank her for the books and also to ask for some other science fiction recommendations and uh yeah she sent through a a couple of, of things which um two of which i liked and one of which i didn't there we go Actually, something that you said about um, the kind of floating spaceships kind of remind me of reminded me of the film Wall-E, but also mm. reminded me of do you know the young adult um, fiction by Philip Reeve, I think, called Mortal Engines. I've heard, I've heard of it, but I've not it, read yeah. it. Ah, <laughs> oh, so I would love to recommend this, but I read it so long ago. You know, when you reread young adult stuff, and sometimes you're like, "Oh God, this is absolute bullshit." <laughs> um, <laughs> at the time, I loved it, and it was like these whole cities roaming around Earth, and I kind of love that kind of the whole of society is packed together on a spaceship or on a um I don't know these were kind of like giant tanks um I love that idea and 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 what you said about how she changes that society and how everyone takes turns to do the horrible jobs that seemed really very progressive um I was just wondering how both of you would feel if you were put on a spaceship with the rest of humanity you don't get to choose who they are oh I'd be very sad I've done gigs on cruise ships, which is that. I've not done gigs on cruise ships because I already know I would hate that. And in fact, <laughs> I when, don't want when, to do that. When Alice came with me on on uh, one of the cruise ships, she did say, "This is like those ships from Wally, where it's just you know, flat, mm. fat people floating around, having their every whim catered for, and still complaining." That's such an indictment of humanity. But I guess it's not the whole of humanity, though, is it? No, it's not. It's no, too- and it's and you're on holiday as well, so it's a behaviour that you're you've paid a lot of money, you want it to go well. Like I'm not saying it's ever justified to be rude to people serving you or staff, but I don't think holiday behaviour always reflects people's mm. life sort of choices. Although I've got to say, having done British and American ships, British people on holiday are far more horrible than Americans on holiday. To your hmm. face. <laughs> my, my observation of them regard, with other people. And I think it's because Americans are used to tipping and on a cruise ship they don't tip. Oh. So people are being nice and polite to them without a financial incentive. And I, I think it throws them. I just think as well, some of the, the, the type of British person that goes on, on multiple cruises 
is a fairly unpleasant person. That might be true. I've never been on a cruise. I'm, I'm safe in saying that because they sure as shit won't be listening to this podcast because they don't approve of books. <laughs> do they not, you know, sit out on the deck with a book? I thought that's what you did. That's what I'd do. I mean, quite a lot of them will sit out on the, on the deck with a magazine. Well, that's just a book that's easier to carry. I was going to say, it's one of the more snobby things I've said today, but it, I mean, it's it tops out. <laughs> Look, if you can follow the plot of a Vogue, you're doing better than if you were reading (laughs) anything Austin ever wrote. You've got to hold the content of the article you were reading across nine straight pages of perfume adverts and stay awake. So that's pretty impressive. And I remember once going through an issue of Vogue and it's something like 150 pages and less than Mm. 10% had articles. Yeah, I find magazines genuinely baffling. Like, the cheaper the magazine, the more content it has. And obviously the content is like, my dad got my baby pregnant on Christmas Eve. But then if you're paying like oh, $14.99 for a yeah. big glossy magazine, it's literally just all adverts. I don't, like, can you read them? I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a big magazine reader. I love those, like, take a break type things where, yeah, my my werewolf son eats jelly on the moon. But they have to... Yeah. They have to have, <laughs> it's vitally important that they get the age of every single person. Yeah, yeah. yeah in brackets. Laura, 30-something. I feel like I haven't read any of those kind of magazines since like the teenage versions of those magazines. And I remember several articles from those that have traumatized me for life, which you don't realize when you're a teenager that they're made up. Um, Mm. But there was definitely one that I read about a black panther in someone's garden, which I've taken to heart and very find camping very, very difficult. (laughs) (laughs) And one time when I went to a festival where I was doing some like kids stuff, we were doing like a bear hunt and it was very, very close. Do you know the Cotswold... Um, what's it called? The Cotswold, Cotswold Wildlife, Wildlife Park? Park? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very close to there. And we went on a walk around this festival and it started getting dark. And we'd already had a run in with some like very posh people who were angry at us for walking across a field in spite of walking across a footpath. But there we go. And we could hear the lions from the Cotswold Wildlife Park. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep here tonight. <laughs> or do the activities tomorrow. I think we need to go home. Um, but we were okay because they were in um, pages. <laughs> Teenage magazines are traumatizing. Yes, absolutely. Well, I thought initially when you said Black Panther, you had an objection to the civil rights movement. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, an actual Black Panther. I was convinced that there was one near where I used to live because I'm sure they had sightings. And so I'm really scared of big cats in the UK. I don't know why. It's one of my big fears. I feel like growing up in the West Country in the 90s, though, various... Beasts on the Loose was, yeah. was on local news at least once a week. Like the Beast of Bobman Moor was my absolute, I don't even know how close I grew up to Bobman, but bloody hell, I was scared <laughs> of it. Yeah, no, it was, it was a, a, a thing that could happen, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it came up a lot. Well, because until about 1985, you could buy wild animals at Harrods. It was yeah. quite common for people to have what? wild animals. Not just dead ones. No, not like, as rugs, like no, real ones. Yeah, yeah, no, there was there was a wild animal department in the basement of Harrods. There was a pet shop. So no. I guess it was around our early childhood. They were releasing them all into the wild because they'd got too big and hungry. So that's Absolutely. probably why we're all so, so scared of it now. In the mid seventies, my mother had a pet bush baby, and that was forever escaping onto the roof. Um, and eventually, we gave it to a zoo because it was too much of a pain in the ass. But yeah, that seemed quite normal to have a pet bush baby. And I had like pet jaboas and our next door neighbour had a lot of snakes. 
I'm never going to go into Harrods with the same attitude again. I mean, I'm never going to go into Harrods. There's a documentary, you can look it up on YouTube, about two guys that had a lion. Uh, they bought the lion cub from Harrods in the 60s, and it like it lived with them in central London until it, it grew too yeah. big, and yeah. then they sent it out to Africa, and it and it was like reintroduced to the wild. It's a, a lovely story. I think Keith Allen's autobiography talks about him having a lion for a while oh, in wow. London. Yeah. I'm just thinking, is he the Tiger King? No. Is he the Tiger King of the UK? Yeah, I don't think he had it for that long. But um, yeah, Arnos Grove, I'm sure he talks about having a lion in his oh, flat yeah. for a while. Because that's where you keep a wild animal. Yeah. This is a diversion from what we're supposed to be talking about. But did you see that with the, uh, <laughs> the, the Trump presidential pardons, Tiger King was convinced he was going to be pardoned and released? And so on the last day of Trump's presidency, there was a limousine parked outside the prison where where, um, Tiger King is at the moment. I can't think of his real name. Um, And his legal team was saying, yep, he's 100% going to be released. The limo is there and we're going to take him for a haircut and to get Mac ribs. Oh, and then he didn't. He didn't, I know. Poor man. Very similar characters though, weren't they? (laughs) From what I understand and I haven't watched it. I was just going to ask, Laura, do you have any final questions for Nick? If you could be any of the aliens from the series, which species would you be and why? Oh, I mean, the the aliens are really, really cool and shiny and sexy, and I do like them. I feel that I have some stuff in common with Captain Ashby as well, um, but that's just because I always see myself as being in charge and slightly misunderstood. Um <laughs> And I think in reality, like Dr. Chef, the grum is kind of me as well, because I'm always trying to either cook stuff or fix stuff. So I mean, there was yeah, a lot, right. lot of relatability. What would you be, Laura, and why? Um... I mean, obviously, you'd be Kizzy. That's, that's basically it. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd like being the AI so that I never had to go out and socialise and touch people. Is this the AI that becomes a person or the computer? Well, it's complicated and there's a spoiler if we explain it. But yes, it's the AI that wants to be in a body. Okay, really interesting. Um, Nick, you wanted to be the captain. Wasn't the captain the one that doesn't carry weapons? So you wouldn't be able to kill any animals anymore? You just have to use my hands. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love that that's not non-plus at all. It's not as though each day I'm like, oh, I wonder what animals I can kill. That's not like a main driver (laughs) for for my day. It's not like, oh, today was wasted. <laughs> it's just that, like, I'm sure, like, earlier in the summer, you were like, oh, someone wants me to kill a rooster. And it, it does come up more often than with, with any other of my friends. In fairness, that rooster was a fucking arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying the killing is not legitimate. I'm just saying that it's just not something I come across okay. with many people. But if somebody has a large, aggressive rooster and it's being a problem, and also you would quite like to eat the large, aggressive rooster, there has to be, at some point, a time when you kill it. <laughs> Did you eat it? Yes, obviously. I'm not going to kill it and not eat it. I'm not a monster. <laughs> right, yes. Let's swap round. Laura, what are you here to talk to us about today? I'm here to wax lyrical about The Lies of Loch Lamora, which is the Gentleman Bastard series by uh, an author called Scott Lynch. Caveat, I feel a bit weird talking about this because I know he is embroiled in some controversy over his personal life. 
And so this is definitely one of those ones where I'm like, mm, how do I feel about the art now that I'm not entirely sure about the artist? And then do I know enough about the artist's supposed crimes to be cross with them? Or is that not my place to jump? Blah, blah, blah. All that, all that is taken into account. But then I keep coming back to the fact that I just love these books and I can't switch that off. So basically, the Gentleman Bastard series is about a group of con men. And the first book, you have Loch Lamora, who is known as the Thorn of Camor. It's all set in, in this city called Camor, which is a very crime-ridden city. And the books exist in a sort of fantasy universe. But I suppose this book, I love it because it was one of the first books that that didn't... Um, that wasn't fantasy as I understood fantasy to mean. Like, I always think fantasy and I think, oh, elves and all the boys that smelt weird at school. <laughs> and then I read this and was like, well, I guess this is fantasy, but it's all sweary and knife fights. And because they're con artists, you've got this like long con going on through the book. And there's sort of mafia connotations of all of the different gangs of criminals in Camor. And there's as well as that, there's this magical element. There's this, uh, they call it alchemical, I think. But there's, magic sort of exists in in different levels. And it, I just love how grubby the whole thing is. So basically, the the members of the, the Gentleman Bastards, they were gathered together as orphans, I think, by Father Chains, who is their leader. And he is a sort of con man in that he's playing the role of the Crooked Warden. The uh, Sorry, no, he's a priest of the Crooked Warden. Um, so they begin their conning like that. And then they basically work up these big schemes. So the first book follows them trying to trick... Oh, it's this... Um, Don Salvara, I think it is, and his wife, um, they're trying to trick him out of a load of money. But then they sort of accidentally get caught up in this other big intrigue with the Kapabasavi, who is one of the kings of the underworld. And there's sort of lots of mysterious, uh, there's a guy called the Falconer. Oh, what's he up to? Um, but it's very funny. I like how funny it is. And it's it's brutal. Like some of the torturing and the death is horrible. But then the the characters, so you've got Locke Lamora, you've got Jean Tannen or Jean Tannen. I don't really know which way you're supposed to pronounce that because I actually read these rather than listen to them. <laughs> and then you've got Callow and Galdo, who are these twins who are very fun, um, sort of, Jack of all trades is how uh, Wikipedia describes them in front of me here to remind me of the plot. And then there's Bug, who is this like young, gorgeous, cute little dude who's their apprentice. And they're just funny. You get the sense that, yeah, they're criminals, but kind of feels like everybody's a criminal. <laughs> and anybody that's not a criminal is part of the elite. And so you're kind of like, oh, you are just a criminal, but you wrote the laws to make what you're doing not technically illegal. Fine. And there's just real warmth between them all. You get the sense that they're clinging together because they don't have anyone else. And they're sort of trying to make these schemes. But there's this sort of code of criminality between them. I just love it. I love the creativity. I love the world. I like the world building. And it's kind of, it's not similar to the Becky Chambers books, really, because it is so heavily full of plot. It is sort of, we're jumping from one bit to the other, but I feel like the detail in the world is enormous. It's it's similar in terms of, rather than alien races being well described, it's different areas of the planet, the world being well described in the different cultures and the different races. The twist at the end of this book left me like, 
absolute gut punch and then you move into the second book which is red seas under red skies and they really just change it up i think that's what i liked so much was same character same world but they've left camor and it's much more sea based and then there's a sort of whole big casino plot which is really exciting it sort of builds on the plot that was developed in the first one but you've got a whole different city that they're in they don't have the same support structure that they had in more because they've moved so you see them dealing with different issues and then in the Republic of Thieves which is the third one which only came out relatively recently I think or much more recently it's again just a totally different feel to the book and it's one of those series that are so good that when this one came out I went back and reread the first and second ones because I was like no I've got to be ready I've got to be prepped for this book so yeah brilliant thank you very much it sounds, um, again, it's it's like a kind of twist on the traditional genre, like um, with the Becky Chambers, like fantasy, but not as you would imagine it. I think I have in my head exactly the same image of fantasy. Like it's like kind of Lord of the Rings yeah. and people that are like really into that. But that sounds really interesting. And, and the kind of funny side of it. How did you come across it as well? Um, I think an ex-boyfriend was reading it. Uh, and so I read it, I think. And then, yeah, I think that's how I heard of it. I think an ex-boyfriend asked for it as a present and I bought it for him and then ended up reading it. But then I loved it so much. And weirdly, when I got together with my now husband, he had it on his shelf. He owned about three books. (laughs) One of them was The Lies of Locke Lamora. And I was like, oh, I don't know anybody else that's read that apart from the ex. So clearly my taste in men is just people that have read the lies of Locke Lamora <laughs> very basic yeah, you showing off that you've got exes who can read <laughs> it's brilliant. it sounds like the whole thing is very character driven and it sounded like in my head I was kind of comparing it to Oliver Twist I don't know if that's like a reasonable comparison to draw in that there's like you know criminal underworld yeah I guess that that is there is that sense of that especially in Oh, I think it must be the first book, but they do flashbacks a little bit like the second Becky Chambers novel. They do flashbacks to Locke Lamora's origin story and how he's sort of plucked out of the child kind of workhouses and how Father Chains finds him and adds him to his little ragtag bunch of kids that he's sort of well-meaningly using for crime. So, yeah, I guess there are elements of that. But then obviously for most of the books, they're adults. One of the really nice things about Locke is that he's tiny. He's really short. He's not very well built. He's not very strong. He is all brain and no brawn. And Gene Tannen, his best friend, like one of the other gentleman bastards, he's very strong and big and has these two knives. I think they're called the Wicked Sisters that his like double machete. So he's the real muscle. But whenever Locke gets into trouble or is cornered in a con, he has to talk and think his way out of it because he's not really a fighter. He's got absolutely no brawn whatsoever. I guess that's really much more important in in a book compared to something like The Avengers, where like the whole point is like punching each other with metal. Yeah, I think that's why I prefer books to... <laughs> that's a a beautiful I've been uh, watching Mark Kermode's Secrets of Cinema series and I think it's missing him describing the Avengers movies as just punching each other with metal (laughs) just remember being forced to watch it with an ex-boyfriend and just going why am I doing this for two hours there is like nothing happening beyond boom ow 
Ow, etc. Sorry, Laura, you were saying something. I've lost what we're <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's why I prefer books to films. Like, even mm. when they make a film out of one of my favourite books, I think, because I'm so much more interested in what the characters are thinking about and what makes them do stuff than their actions. And books lend themselves much better to elaborating on what somebody's thinking. And sort of, you know, like when Locke's cornered, you see him like going through all the possible ways he could get out of it. And I think a book is just an an easier way to show the audience that. Yeah, it's kind of like you can deep dive into kind of more of the psychological stuff. Mm. I agree. I mean, I'm going to co- make a comparison to a novel that is very, 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 very different. I just read this 18th century novel because I feel a lot of guilt about not reading things that I was supposed to read at university. And I was thinking about how it could possibly be adapted because it's it's Jane Austen's style, but it's not Jane Austen, so no one's bothered. I think like you have to kind of have a narrator, basically, even though there's not exactly a narrator in the books often the only way to get that kind of depth is by having like this fake narrator and just like making up all of this stuff I don't know maybe it's done in, well in some tv shows but it's not the same as reading it and kind of I think it, it depends yourself. how your brain works I think cinematography can be really clever in depicting this sort of stuff with clues to be interpreted mm. I think film buffs would argue that this sort of stuff does happen in films but you have to read it I, I, I find myself having to interpret it a bit more. Like my husband mm. loves films and he'll watch things and be like, oh, but that shot was done like that, which meant that. And I think it just goes over my head a little bit. Mm. Whereas reading, it says, this is how the character feels. And I go, okay, good. <laughs> and that just works for me a bit better than trying to go, oh, I think the use of sunset means he's sad. In a, in a novel, if you need to spend four pages talking about somebody's thought process, you can do that. Because people's attention span mm. is getting shorter and shorter, in film, having the, the luxury of explanation isn't really there anymore. Mm. And yet still, films are getting longer and longer. Jesus. Well, that's because they need to have... I've now started exclusively choosing films that are under (laughs) an hour 40 long. (laughs) If it's over an hour 40, I'm not watching it. And that's how I decide what we're watching now. There's a guy called Pat Higgins who does low-budget horror films and teaches filmmaking um, and, and film script writing. And he does all of his films based on a scrapbook that he started when he was about 13, which was like his rules for making horror films. Uh, one of those was that no horror film should be more than one hour, 20 minutes long. Yeah, and so it, good. Every, every, everything he's done, I think his shortest film is 64 minutes and his longest is 80. So, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting compared to like stand-up, which doesn't go, as far as I'm aware, doesn't go beyond an hour unless you have like an interval. And in terms of like... I don't know that much about stand-up. I'm trying to learn, but like about the way that you can hold an audience's attention and how it kind of fades at like about 40 minutes or something like that. And I mean, again, I don't know that much about film, but I wonder what it is that means that you can kind of watch a film for that much longer. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting getting harder because people people are used to multi-screening now as well. So... Yeah, the number of people, mm. particularly watching films at home, who will also be looking at something on their phone or on a tablet whilst the film is on. So, so more and more films are becoming background to other things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been watching Taskmaster because I can't think of anything like beyond about eight o'clock anymore. Mm. Um, and my partner is regularly on his phone texting people. And I'm like, well, you're not going to understand the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> you're ruining it. And that's like 45 minutes. <laughs> not like, you know, a hard amount of time. I've t- 
taken to watching more things with subtitles so that I have to watch it and I'm not tempted to look at my phone. Yes, I'm doing that at the moment with Call My Agent. The new series just <gasps> dropped. I just read a review for that. It looks amazing. Oh, it's so fun. I've been waiting for series four, like, come on! <laughs> and it's finally here. But yeah, that's exactly, it's all in French. So I have to sit down and just watch it and do nothing else. It's really good for me. Perfect. Wow, well, isn't that an indictment of our times? Yes. <laughs> we just like, have to force ourselves mm. to pay attention to one thing. But then with books, I can sit down for three hours and read without wandering yeah. off or picking my phone up or doing anything else I'm perfectly happy to read for hours and hours I just think it engages my brain in a different way to sitting and watching watching just doesn't go in whereas reading I get yes. in it <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean so when when my wife Alice gets really into a book she gets very, very angry in the last 20 pages that it's about to be over. And if she really enjoys it, she won't read anything else for a few days afterwards because she knows she'll be cross with the new book for not being the book that she loved. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that. I remember reading the end of the His Dark Materials trilogy. And this is when I was like, this is a very strong memory from when I was a teenager and just crying my eyes out and my mum coming up and being like oh god something traumatic has happened to my daughter and I was like I read this book it's really sad so I saw the his dark materials uh when they made uh, a play of it and put it on at the Barbican about 17 Ooh. 18 years ago and they condensed the trilogy into two plays which were staged a month apart. And so I had to trek down to London twice to see part one and part two and it was obviously it was the same cast the last 20 minutes of the second one, when obviously everybody who's there has read the books, they know how it ends, they know what's going to be happening, and they can see the hornbeam tree is in the back of the stage, ready for those closing scenes. And gradually everybody in the theatre starts crying. So it's incredibly moving to be part of. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't imagine. And even when I reread it that more recently, I, I was traumatised and I really love those. I think they're probably my favourite books of all time. Anyway, sorry, this is a bit off topic. <laughs> I was going to go back to Laura. You were saying that you could read a book for hours and hours and you recently published a book. Are you able to write and write for hours? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, no, no, I can't. And even when I'm writing something I really like, I have maybe two hours in me a day it, it, between 10 minutes and two hours and I've just learned about myself to just do a bit every day to keep on top of it than assume that there's any day where I'll do nine hours because I won't and it won't be good I'll just sit at my computer and stare at it and faff about with admin jobs and anything else that doesn't require as much energy as being creative whereas if I just go, just bash 800 words out and then you're done for the day or you can carry on if you feel like it, I'll do that. But <sighs> it's hard writing. And it's it's such a stupid thing to say. It's hard to write because no, it isn't. You just make up a story and write it down. But the emotional energy and the concentration to to create is, ugh. it's really difficult in a world where there's just so many things you can consume. Mm, absolutely. Yes. So I'm, I'm finding this as well. So I'm just about at the stage where I was going to be sending my book about doing community service out to agents. And then I got a copy of Nick Pettigrew's book, Antisocial, which is a similar sort of secret mm. diary thing. And I thought I should probably read that because it's in a related field, 
And also I was aware that he'd got a massive advance for it. And straight away discover that what I've written is much funnier than what he's written, but what he's written is more interesting. And it's more interesting <laughs> because he's, he's very good at juxtaposing like the theory of what should happen with the legislation and you know, best practice for antisocial behaviour situations with what actually happens, which now means that I have to go back through and rewrite every single chapter, including more of the theory of you know, what's supposed to happen with community service and what actually happens, which in doing it makes mine more interesting, but it's created a huge amount of work and I resent every second of it. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, it, I think it's hard because writing a book is such a long project and I respond well to being able to tick things off. So I have to break it down to be like, write X words today or write this chapter or get that plot point marked out and then you're done. Yeah. I wish I was a bit more like, I've got the whole day and evening. I'll just sit down and I'll just get lost in this world and conjure them up. But I'm just not like that. And I've stopped fighting myself over it. Uh, mm. Hemingway did that. Hemingway decided that because he was too easily distracted, he would write 500 words a day. Yeah. And Sometimes that would take him 10 minutes and sometimes that would take him six hours, but he would write 500 words and he would stop at 500 words so that if he was mid-sentence, at least he'd have three or four words to start with tomorrow. Yeah, it's good that way. That's how I wrote Klopp, actually. I set myself a couple of hundred words to do a day. I worked out how many words I'd need to do to hit my word limit by the deadline, set that many a day, and I did that. And it it worked because then also, like, I think keeping coming back to it every day means it's always at the top of your brain. So coming up with new Mm. ideas for the next day or, like, conjuring Mm. the world again, it doesn't get dusty in between. But I think you have to accept what you're good at as well. Like, I feel guilty sometimes because I can churn something out that's brilliant in half an hour. And if I sat there for another three and a half hours, I wouldn't be that brilliant for the whole four hours. That first Mm. half hour would be brilliant and then three and a half hours would be waste of time so it's just better for me to just be really good for a short period of time and then wander off babe do what you like the day's yours but I just I won't do it so (laughs) what's so much more realistic (laughs) yeah I think there's so much like mythology around writers and people look up to like Shakespeare or Jane Austen as genius but you just don't see like any of the context any of the stuff that's informed them because they're like so held up and revered you just have no sense of like how many revisions they did and how much editing they did and and you know how they had to work at it yeah I don't envy you there's a there's a romanticizing of it that you know, it pours out of you or this or that, but it doesn't. You chip it out of a vague idea you've got. Like, I've been working on a TV idea with a producer for a couple of months now, maybe even nearly a year, and we are still just going backwards and forwards over the treatment to heavily iron out what's going to happen with the plot. It is almost unrecognisable to the idea that we started with and there have been weeks where I've just stared at it and gone, I don't even like this idea anymore. I hate doing this. And some days I sit down and go, oh, wouldn't this scene be amazing? And I have a great idea for a scene. And some days I just have to grind it out and go, right, literally looking at formula and going there has to be an up point for this character here to make this negative point work what is a up point that's going to work and it's that it's that boring and basic and unromantic but that's what it is that's the truth behind it all I think it is really helpful to hear though cool I also just wanted to mention before I do the final summing up and stuff 
Laura, I've got Klopp actually, and I've been making my partner read it to me at night. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and I think he's like kind of slowly understanding that it's more of like an instruction manual for stuff that he ought to be doing. <laughs> yes. There's some bits where he's like, oh yeah, I should I should be turning off the lights or like <laughs> I should be anticipating when you're hungry. And I'm like, oh, thanks so much, Laura. <laughs> I actually, I, I got breakfast in bed this morning and I've never had <sighs> breakfast in bed before. So it might take like a year, but it will sink in eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Nick and Laura, for joining me. Is there anything that you would like to promote? Uh, I would love you to come to my online tour. I have moved my tour to the internet and I'm touring around venues, all from my attic straight to wherever you live. So if you go to my website, you can choose whichever date suits you and then find out where it is because it doesn't matter because geography is meaningless. Brilliant. We came to Cambridge on Saturday. <laughs> Did you enjoy Cambridge? <laughs> It was remarkably easy to access yes. compared to you. <laughs> Especially given the snow. It was very yeah. impressive travel arrangements. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and Nick? Um, I'm just going to plug Laura's tour. Go to Laura's tour online. Parking is surprisingly <laughs> easy. <laughs> brilliant thank you very much and if you want to follow the alternative book club you can find us on facebook at alt book club and you can find out more about the writing groups that we're leading and you can just find links to other episodes of the podcast brilliant thank you so much nick and laura thank you very much to you for listening and goodbye goodbye